Morning. Oh, thank you. Oh, wow, it's so nice to see your faces. I feel like I've just seen you from like the eyes up for the last few months. Lovely to see some smiles. Um, before I start, I'd like to pray. It's always the best place to start, isn't it? So, Lord, God, we thank you. We thank you that you are here this morning. God, we thank you that you are all those things that we've just sung. God, it's good to be reminded of who you are. God, I thank you that you are here. God, I pray you'll speak to us this morning. God, prepare our hearts for what you want to say this morning. God, I pray this message will be an encouragement, that God, a difference will come out of what you're going to say this morning. We don't want to stay where we are. We want to keep following you. God, we thank you that you are here. Amen. Cool. So I'm really excited to share this message this morning. Oh, mum does this every time, and I'm now doing it too. I've got hair, haven't I? Never mind. That's cool. It's cute. Um, So I'm really excited to share this message this morning because I feel like God wants me to talk about something that I am incredibly passionate about, and that is community. I feel more inspired, actually, because yesterday we went to go and see a show called Come From Away. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's based on a true story, and it's based in when the 9-11 attacks happened, 38 planes were diverted out of the American airspace and they landed in this place in Canada called Gander. And it's this tiny remote place in a place called Newfoundland. And it follows the story. So the community is about 9,000 people. So overnight, it's doubled to 16,000. So it follows the story of the community who open up their homes and ultimately their hearts to all these people. And they sing of the life-changing experience that community was. And it just reaffirms my belief that community can be life-changing when it's done right. But I don't want to talk this morning about our community as in where we live, but our godly community, the church. And there's so much that I could say about this, but I believe that God has highlighted two things that are essential to a thriving community, and that's love for each other and unity. And I do truly believe the success of our community is on these two things. And I really do believe we are a loving church. In my many years here, I feel like I can say that with full confidence. It's not a criticism of who we are, but it's encouraging that where we can be, we can grow and we can become more loving and more unified. After a year of being apart is how we want to move forward together. And I'm excited about that. Are you? Now, I know that loving each other is vital to a thriving community because Jesus commanded his disciples to love each other. In John 13, 34, he's speaking to his disciples for the last time. This is the last chance that he has with them before he goes to the cross. So it's the last supper. And he knows he hasn't got much time left. So I'm sure he wanted to share with them the things that he felt were important. And in his final moments, he says this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus knew that when he was gone, the thing that would hold his disciples together was their love for each other. Then there's unity, this idea of oneness. Just after Jesus gives the command uh, to the disciples, we see him praying in the garden to his father. And he first prays for his disciples, that they would be unified. And then he prays for us, the future believers. So John 17, 20 to 21 says this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, 
that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so the world might know that you have sent me. I'm old school, I've got paper still, you see, (laughs) even though my job is very digital. So in his final hours, these two things were on Jesus' mind. He's about to die this horrendous death. We've just thought about that as we've taken community. But yet, he's focused on what's coming next, the building of the church. So what we're going to do this morning is take some time learning from the early church. So we're going to look at Acts 2 and Acts 4. I really believe they're a beautiful picture of the community of Christ as it was intended. So we're going to pull a few things that we can learn out from there. So if you've got a Bible or a device, if you'd like to go to Acts 2, 37 to 42. So it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who wouldn't want to be part of that community? Secondly, if you want to turn the page, we've got Acts 4. Acts 4, 32 to 34. It says, All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, there were no needy persons among them. So there's a lot to pick apart from those two things. But my first point is simply this. All the believers were together and in one heart and mind. Now firstly, physically, that means they turned up. Now I'm not I know we're in a funny time, so hear my heart on this. I'm not criticizing anyone who can't be here because of various reasons. But we were made to be together. We weren't meant to do life in isolation. God always intended that we would be together. It says in Ephesians that before he even created the world, he wanted to adopt us into his family. We're a body. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts. All its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. There was this um, beautiful moment in the show we saw yesterday. And basically, obviously, on those 38 planes, there were going to be people who didn't speak the language. And there were, this guy is talking, and he's saying that on the buses that were coming in, there was his family. They couldn't understand what was going on. They were scared, and they just sat there. They wouldn't come off the bus. And this guy spots in the wife's hand a Bible. And he he knows that the numbering system must be the same. So he picks this Bible out of this woman's hand, and he points to Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. And both the characters at the same time say this. And we began to speak the same language. I just burst into tears when I heard it because it reminds me that the bond we share is so deep. It goes beyond all of those things. We are a body put together by God. 
bound together by the Spirit. But just because we're a body, oneness is not necessarily a product automatically of being a body. My biological family and my family by my blood, but it's my actions towards them and them towards me that create and maintain those relationships. Oneness is created when we love intentionally. If we go back to the verse I first mentioned in John 13, 34, Jesus says to love each other as he loved his disciples. Now that is a massive challenge. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love each other. But we, we know this, don't we? Jesus loved his disciples so much that he died for them. He died for us. As I have loved you, so you must love each other. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How different, then, would our community look if it was made up of a people willing to go to the cross for each other? A people willing to sacrifice for each other. You know, we've heard from Daryl that Jesus loved us so deeply, but he also feels that about the person you find a bit annoying, <laughs> the person that's an inconvenience to you, the person who disagrees with your opinion. He wants us to love them as he loves them. That's a pretty big challenge, isn't it? But secondly, the early church saw fellowship as a priority. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship, communion, prayer, and teaching. Three things that you'd say are pretty important to being part of a church. But the early church pursued fellowship with the same passion as those things. The Greek word used here for the devoted themselves phrase means to devote, to persevere, to be steadfastly attentive unto, to give unremitting care to a thing. They saw their relationships with each other as a priority, and they didn't reserve it just for the people that they liked. It says in Corinthians 14.1 in the message version, go after a life of love as if your life depends on it, because it does. I love that. Loving each other should be a priority, not simply because Jesus commands it, but it's essential to us doing our mission as a church. We need each other. Our relationships help us grow into the best, holiest versions of ourselves. It says in Proverbs 27:17, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, I began running about a year ago. Never thought I'd be up here telling a running story, I have to say. Um, but when Gino and I got back from our honeymoon after a lot of food and not a lot of exercise, we decided that we would start running together. And, well, Gino decided. I just reluctantly said yes. But I really, really didn't want to do it. And not because I didn't want to go running with him, but I'm not a strong runner. I wasn't then. I was embarrassed because I didn't want him to see how slow I actually was. And I just thought it could be a bit embarrassing. But I went anyway. And he started off next to me. And as you can imagine, slowly crept in front of me. But he stayed there just in front of me, the whole way round. And what surprised me about that was that when he was there, looking over his shoulder, cheering me on the whole way, I finished. We didn't really stop. 
his encouragement helped me go. And I left that run a life lesson, not just for our marriage, but, well, for our relationships in general. In order to get better, to get fitter, to become a better runner, I had to allow Gino to see my mess and embarrassment. We need people who love us but refuse to leave us where we are. He continued to, every run we went on after that, he continued to stay in front of me, cheering me on, even when I was begging him to come back and run at my slow crawl. He wouldn't because he knew I could do more, I could do better. In the same way, I started running with Jess. Running with Jess was a lot nicer, don't tell Gino. Um, but she, she, we would do this thing where if one of us was having a bad run, we would fall back and we would help each other. We need people like that too who come to us in our mess and stay with us and say, hey, I'll help you finish. We need each other. My third point. Every day, they continued to meet together. I'm not using this point to suggest that we start meeting together every day. Don't worry, as much as I would probably love that. Um, but what I want to draw from this is their persistence and commitment to their community. Do you not think there were days when the early church probably thought, I just want to stay home, watch a bit of Netflix, I don't want to go out tonight. But they didn't do that. They continued to go. They recognized that in order for the community to function as it was, they had to all keep at it. The, the Acts Church seemed to recognize that for a body to function, all organs have to play their part. All parts of the body, as I've said, are necessary to the function of the whole body. If you walk with a limp, the rest of your body feels that. We know that from our own physical experience. And Daryl and the leaders can do their part, and they can do it exceptionally well. But unless the rest of us get on board and stand united with them, they carry dead weight, really. But when we stand with them, God moves. The spirit flows. We need to encourage, stand with, turn up, and support each other. We have to persevere even when it's hard. And it says they met with glad and sincere hearts. I know I've been in meetings when I probably haven't felt glad and sincere to be there, but it's an attitude change, isn't it? They went glad and sincere hearts. They wanted to be together. My fourth point. They shared everything they had. They were generous. In their generosity, the early church modeled the love that Jesus called them to, the love that mirrored his own. We know Jesus' love was unselfish. Jesus had nothing to gain from his relationship with the disciples. He knew what he was giving them was far more than they could ever give him. Yes, he used them to help the word of God spread, but he first poured life into them. He chose dirty, probably smelly, uneducated fishermen and chose to give them a new direction, new life, and a new purpose. And there were probably so many times he must have thought it would be easier to do it solo. I know I probably would. When they asked questions, when they made mistakes, when they doubted him, but he never gave up on them. And just before the command Jesus gives to love each other, he washes their feet. Now, we know that's 
probably a bit weird because that task was reserved for the lowest ranking servant. But yet Jesus does it. He didn't gain anything from that. I doubt it was particularly enjoyable, not the state of the feet they would have had back then. But he found the joy in it, knowing the disciples would gain. He asks us to do the same. It means that sometimes we have to kneel down, put our hands in the bucket, and help restore the grimiest parts of people's lives, because that is what Christ did for his disciples. It's what he did for us on the cross. Is it easy? No, (laughs) no. Is it glamorous? Absolutely not. But is it worth it? I don't even think I need to answer that. When you are obedient and unselfish in love, you will always walk away more blessed than when you went into it. I know that from my experience, and I know that you know that from yours. Unfortunately, you can't love without giving. John 3.16 literally says, God so loved the world that he gave. I'm sorry, but to love as Jesus loved You have to be willing to be generous, whether that is the physical gifts or your time and your energy. Number five, their love and unity drew people in. New believers were added to their number daily. But why was this community so attractive to individuals? Well, if they're modeling the love of Jesus, it was revolutionary. I think sometimes we forget as a very predominantly privileged people just how different Jesus' love was to the culture that they knew then. It went against every societal norm and expectation. I was talking to someone recently, actually, and she works with uh, oppressed women in other cultures And she was saying that when she shares Jesus with these people, it's not necessarily the gospel message that she shares, but this Jesus, the Jesus that loved women, the Jesus that respected women, the Jesus that in a a Middle Eastern Eastern man in a place that saw women as second-class citizens would love and respect and appear to and teach women. That was revolutionary. And it's not just women, is it? It's every person that was seen as an outcast, as diseased, as a criminal. The Jesus we model and the Jesus the disciples modeled went against every societal norm to love, and that is the love that will set us apart. That is the love that will draw people to us, which will point them towards Jesus and ultimately salvation. When Jesus prays for oneness in John 17, he draws a correlation between our oneness and our witness. He says that we are, when we are one with God and with each other, people might believe that he died for them. So that's why being united and being loving like the early church are here is essential to our mission as a church. If salvation is our aim, I believe that it is, this is how God tells us to do it. Now, when I was younger, um, when Jess and I were little, my granddad had this bright orange cap, and it was hideous, really, but they used to take us to these theme parks, and I loved the cap (laughs) because no matter how high in the sky we were or how far away from him we were, 
I would always be able to find him again because of that cat. And when he died, I wrote in his eulogy that I believed that that cat represented the love of Jesus that he took with him everywhere, that people saw it and they were drawn to it. And I desperately want our church to be like that orange cat. I want us to be unmissable in our love and our community. I want people to be drawn to us, to not be able to miss us, that we would, yeah, impact other people. In The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, he says that when you are part of a church, you will share in Christ's mission in the world. When Jesus walked the earth, God worked through the physical body of Christ. Today, he uses his spiritual body. The church is God's instrument on earth. We are not just to model God's love by loving each other. We are to carry it together to the rest of the world. This is an incredible privilege we have been given together. As members of Christ's body, we are his hands, his feet, his eyes, and his heart. He works through us in the world. We each have a contribution to make. Point number six. They were filled with the Spirit. Now, this is perhaps one of the most important points of this message. Just before the two passages in Acts, in Acts 2, we see Pentecost, where the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Then, in Acts 4, just before the passage about their community, we again see a real move of God. Both passages come immediately after these moves. I don't believe this is a coincidence at all. We cannot achieve any of this unless we are filled with the Spirit. As a human, I can only love you in my human capacity. Only when I have access to the perfect love of God in the form of the Holy Spirit, then can I begin to love you as Jesus did. There's a beautiful quote um, from Corrie ten Boom. If you don't know, she was in a concentration camp for many years, and her books are just phenomenal if you ever get the chance to read them. But she says this, Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. When Jesus commands us to love, he gives us his love in the form of the Spirit. Perfect love comes from God, not from us. We need to be continually being filled so we can continually love. And finally, as a result, God moved powerfully among them. The result of a community who were committed to God and to each other was that God moved powerfully among them. They saw signs and wonders. They had their needs met. Because the body functioned properly, they were able to move in the direction that God had called them. And I want to finish by reading 1 Corinthians 13. And I know that you know it. You'll have heard it at weddings. But actually, contextually, it's aimed at the body of Christ. It sits between Paul's instructions for churches. But it says this. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The passage ends with this. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And I spent a long time praying and pondering as to why Paul would say that the greatest of these is love. And I came to this conclusion. Because faith and hope are for now but we will be loving each other for eternity. I'm going to say it again. Faith and hope are for now, but we will be loving each other for eternity. This love is a preparation for our eternity together, and I'm excited about that. Now let's start now. Amen. Thank you.